As an acoustic ecologist and sound artist, Doug Quinn, Tufts class of 1983, has traveled to the most remote corners of the world to record the sounds of nature. With a microphone in his hand, he has tracked down lemurs in Madagascar and trekked through the Amazon rainforest for howler monkeys. During one of his three trips to Antarctica, he even captured the unusual calls made by Waddell seals. And when you see them at the surface, they're, they're big and fat, and they look like big slugs hauled out on the ice. But underwater, they are absolute poetry, in motion, and the sounds are otherworldly. You can feel some of these calls through nearly six feet of ice tickling your feet in your big insulated bunny boots. It's just extraordinary, the range and power in these voices. Doug works for long stretches of time away from civilization, often all on his own. But for him, being so removed from the rest of the world, even in a cold, forbidding place like Antarctica, well, it has a kind of joy. When it falls quiet and when there's not a lot of wind, which is almost constant, it really is some of the most profound sort of inner listening. You know, you could hear your pulse uh, and very, very little else. And I'd say that's probably some of the most profound experience of both silence and isolation. This is Tell Me More, the Tufts University podcast. I'm Anna Miller. And I'm Julie Flaherty. And today we're mixing it up a bit, taking a break from our usual interviews with campus visitors to dive deep into the topic of isolation. And we haven't seen each other in about five months, right, Anna? Right. Everyone's been isolating to some extent. And some people, like Doug Quinn, seem better able to handle it than others. So to figure out why, we talked to a bunch of people in the Tufts community about being isolated. From an acoustic ecologist in Antarctica. To a Buddhist monk in the mountains of Nepal. To a neuroscientist who studies what loneliness looks like in the brain. And we asked them, how do you be alone without feeling lonely? But first, we have to point out a sad truth. Even before we had to isolate, a lot of us were already feeling pretty lonely. I talked with Nasser Gami, a professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine. He said he worries the pandemic is going to exacerbate a problem that is already plaguing society. Loneliness as a problem has been reported for a long time. But about one third is probably a fair number to say of the general population feels lonely. Um, and that's pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, it's presumably it's one half or more. It's probably the majority. So the loneliness issue, I think, is a bigger one. It's about why in the general culture, in our society, when everything is going fine, still one out of every three people feels disconnected from others. Despite the rise of social media, people apparently aren't feeling as close to each other as they once did. People who invented Facebook and so on, they claim they're bringing people together, and they are in a way, but they're also pulling people even further apart because they're, they're, the virtual interactions are replacing what in real person interactions existed before, which was already less than existed 50 or 100 years ago. So I think there's a general decline in what other sociologists call social capital, which is people being connected to each other in a way that enriches them psychologically. So we've already got an uphill battle against loneliness. 
But when I look at Quinn recording wildlife in the field, it seems like he was born to spend stretches of time away from people, communing with nature. So are some people just made that way? To find out, we talked to someone who studies the biology of loneliness. Yes, I'm Tohan Canley. I'm a professor of psychology and psychiatry at Stony Brook University. He's also a Tufts alum. Arts and Sciences, 1988. We asked Conley why some people tend to feel more lonely more often than others. He said part of it is genetics, as studies of twins have shown, but that doesn't mean that your genes completely control how lonely you are. Conley says nature and nurture both play a role in building up the neural connections that fight loneliness. It's a little bit of uh, genetics and it's a little bit of life experiences and the two kind of interact with one another all the time. Genes are quite dynamic regulatory little switches that get turned on, turned off, where the volume gets cranked up or down a little bit, depending on other signaling molecules. And some of those signaling molecules are released by social experiences. So when you feel a surge of joy, when you see somebody that you've not seen in a long time, there is a release of endorphins that comes with that, a release of oxytocin that comes with that, uh, vasopressin. There's a couple of hormones that play a big role in our social experiences. People who tend to feel lonely don't seem to get that same rush. Conley says one imaging study showed that people who feel lonely don't show much activity in the reward centers of the brain when exposed to social experiences. And unfortunately, the effects are not just emotional. If you feel socially isolated, if you feel lonely, not only does it kind of hurt your heart, but it's also stressful. And so you have the release of stress hormones that are that are in your bloodstream and affecting every organ, including your brain. So people that experience high levels of loneliness also show not simply higher levels of emotional stress, maybe depression and anxiety, but they also show higher levels of physical illnesses, such as cancer, inflammatory diseases, heart disease, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, But before you worry that isolation is going to give you a whole host of diseases other than coronavirus, Conley points out that there's a powerful antidote to loneliness, having a purpose. You know, we've done some work in the past where we looked at the relationship between having a purpose in life and stress hormones that we measured in people's saliva when they were exposed to a socially stressful situation in a lab. And what we found was that people that have a high purpose have a normal stress response, meaning that if they are exposed to stressor, they will release cortisol, but they go back to baseline much quicker uh, than someone who, who's lacking that purpose. And, and one thing I liked about the study is that we didn't tell people what their purpose was. It was whatever it is to them. So everybody can find a purpose if they don't have one yet. The purpose could be, you know, uh, taking care of others. The purpose could be Attaining some sort of mastery in a hobby. It could be finishing that book, or it could be serving a higher purpose of some sort, right? Whatever that is to you. And so if you, if you don't feel we have one now, then take active steps in, in, in trying to find a purpose for you. And, and that can be very empowering too. Having a purpose makes perfect sense. It gives you a goal to focus on while you're on your own. And some people choose isolation because it helps them to meet a goal. I talked with one Tufts alum who chose a solitary and exceptionally long path to get to where he wanted to be. 
My name is Chris Martin, and uh, 2007, between my sophomore and junior year at Tufts, I did a northbound through hike of the Appalachian Trail by myself. Uh, so I walked from southern Georgia up to northern Maine between May 17th after my final exam and August 19th, just before I started back at school. That's amazing that you wanted to hike the AT just in itself, but why did you want to hike it alone? Um, well, part of that was out of necessity. I went solo because I didn't know anyone who I thought would want to do it with me. Uh, they're not easy to come by. <laughs> Friends who are willing to get up, give up an entire summer to, to walk. Also, you can move much faster by yourself. Uh, the fewer people you have, the fewer chances of an upset, uh, an injury, a sickness, you know, anything going wrong. So if you're hiking by yourself for more than 90 days, how do you keep your mind occupied? I sang a lot of songs in my head, quickly realized that I don't know all the lyrics to many songs, as many as I thought I did. Uh, just kind of learned to zone out really well. Um, Got to be really comfortable just kind of exploring your own thoughts. There's a lot of introspection. You know, every day you just spend the first hour or so trying to lose your mind, like trying to let your mind go. Because the more you're thinking about what you're doing, the longer your day takes. You just got to like kind of zone out and daydream while you're walking. <laughs> <laughs> and it does take practice. Yeah, it did take practice. You definitely have those days where you're just missing home, missing friends, missing family. And one of the beauties of being out there on the trail is you have no recourse. Like I, I didn't have a, a cell phone that worked or anything. I didn't have any way to contact anybody. It's just like, well, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm missing home a little bit, a little homesick, but all I can do is keep walking. I'd always keep telling myself when I was walking, especially in those first few months, this is my life right now. Like, just get used to it. Like, there's this is your reality for the next three months. Just don't give yourself an option mentally of leaving, because if you, then all it takes is a moment of weakness and the whole thing's off. The, the saying on the trail is hike your own hike. I mean, everybody's experience is completely different. And there's no wrong, there's no wrong way to do it. So some people literally treat it as, kind of a, a walking party and you'll see them go into town and like hit every bar in town and stay there for like a week and maybe do some like quick contract jobs or like pick up an odd job somewhere washing dishes and just kind of like work their way up the trail it might take them two years to finish um then you have you have some people who are going for the records i mean you there's this guy from boston recently that set the record uh for unsupported through hike on the AT, which was incredible. And there's no way to say that one of those is wrong and one of those is right. They have different goals and different experiences. Um, but certainly I'd say that hiking by yourself, you have a lot more opportunity for really introspecting and thinking about why you're there. <laughs> I'm not convinced that everyone really knows the answer to that when they start, but certainly by the end, by the end you do. Would you be willing to share what was your, your answer to that question? I think one of the reasons I ended up doing it is to prove that I could, prove that I could do something 
very difficult on my own. Uh, but also something I got out of it is an ability to really reach out to people when I need help and be more open about talking to people. It was kind of reaffirmed my faith in humanity. There were so many really generous and altruistic people that I met on the trail while I was walking, you know, people who'd pick me up when I'm soaking wet and smelly and drive me into town. Or when I was up in West Hartford, Vermont, I was looking for a place to stay and this couple was on their porch. And this is one of the few places the trail goes right through town. They saw me walking by, they invited me in for dinner. They let me camp in the yard. They did my laundry for me and they sent me off with some extra food and moments like that where I wasn't out there asking for it. They, they just called me in out of the generosity of their hearts. It, it was definitely one of the highlights of my life and I look back on it very fondly, especially as things get hectic. I think about just the singularity of the goal then and it was, uh, it was really freeing. Okay, so having a purpose to your isolation, like hiking thousands of miles, can make a huge difference in how you feel about being alone. And everyone's seen that inspiring story about Isaac Newton inventing calculus while he was isolating during the bubonic plague. But the thing is, that's not strictly true. Newton started work on calculus well before he had that time alone. And even if he didn't, the pressure to achieve something great, just because you have time to yourself, might not be the healthiest motivator. Jennifer Granquist, a staff clinician at the Tufts Counseling Center, has worked with high-achieving college students throughout her career. And for some students, isolation has only cranked up the expectations they put on themselves. I'll talk with students and they'll say, I just didn't do anything meaningful today. And I feel a lot of shame around that. There's some students I'll talk with about toxic productivity, like this pressure, because we're seeing a lot of creativity out there. And I talked to a student recently who's like, well, I haven't finished this art project I'm supposed to do for this. And there's like this sense of shame around not being as productive as usual. People feel like, oh, I have this, this, I'm almost on this artist's retreat um, in my house. I have to produce, mm -hmm. I have to make. Exactly. So we talk about that in shifting the idea of creativity, where it's creativity to be productive, to be seen, to be thought of as uh, the sense of I was busy and then it affects my self-worth versus creativity for the joy of creating and feeling grounded in it and excited about it. And you want to share it with other people, but it doesn't have the same obsession around like self improvement or like I have to prove something to somebody else that I did this thing and I used my time wisely. None of us had had a class like how to survive a pandemic and what to do at home. You know, it, it's just a, it's, it's not a environment that we're all used to. And I think sometimes uh, work can, working too hard can kind of harm ourselves um, with this unrealistic expectation that you're constantly not good enough, smart enough, all the enoughs that kind of trail through. So um, yeah, just building that self-compassion for um, we're doing the best you can. 
then I can see how it, it would be easy if there aren't other people to distract you or to interact with you and or talk about what you're thinking that you can get into a loop of, oh, I should be doing this, I should be doing this, I should be doing better. Right. It's kind of like being caught up in a stream and a stream and a stream. And so sometimes what's helpful with the mindfulness to teach that to students is like, all right, how can I bring you over to the, you know, the, the bank of the river that's flowing, your thoughts are going, going, going. How can I help you come over and ground yourself on the side where you can see like, all right, is this thought true? What happens when I believe this thought is true? Because when we're stuck in those loops, we're relieving all the thoughts. We're just kind of stuck in this loop. Rebecca Musiega, Tufts class of 2020, knows something about what goes through your mind when you're isolated and it's not by choice. Right now, she's getting ready for graduate school and living with family in Nairobi. And you can hear that it's a bustling household. But as an international student from Kenya, she spent many school breaks at Tufts pretty much on her own. Her first winter break when most other students had left campus was particularly hard. And oh, it was it was a scary time, just and a very one of like I think a very lonely time for me looking back. You know, you try watch everything Netflix as much Netflix as you can possibly watch just to get away from your thoughts. You know, so I think it was just almost like a combination of a lot of different emotions and different factors. First, just feeling sad and devastated for yourself, and then also a lot of guilt in terms of am I not making enough friends? Am I not acclimating as I should? Maybe someone would have invited me to spend Christmas at their house if I'd, you know, if I'd spent my first semester better or anything or something like that. And then also, I think also the guilt also comes from, you know, because I'm trying to get away from my emotions. I'm trying to distract myself with Netflix, with sleep, sleeping in until 1 p.m. or whatever it is. I think just feel guilty and horrible. So for me, it was just a lot of emotions and it was a really dark time I think in my life but also one of the most meaningful um now thinking back on how it's you know how that experience influenced so much of the rest of the three years that I spent at Tufts. I think it's when I started becoming really more cognizant of my mental health because I think I've been raised in a community where people tend to don't talk about it too much you know that's the environment that I was raised in, but it was an important time for me to start digging deep, to start getting in touch with what I was feeling and trying to understand that. So I think in that time, you know, and that was a very sobering realization almost. And it was like, it's okay to feel this way. It's okay to have that culture shock, that anxiety of being in a new environment. Don't be too hard on yourself. But in terms of positive impact, I think that was the break that I spent thinking about like thinking more actively about what I wanted to get out of my uh, my college career and I remember writing my future plans and being like you know this is what I want to major in this is why I'm interested in it because you just have so much time like you know so much time to think about everything to think about your life I became very very comfortable with being alone with solitude and even it's something I seek until today I'm usually like okay I just need to go back, I need to recharge, I need to re-energize. We all need time to recharge, especially introverts. And maybe that's one reason why Quinn, a self-described introvert, 
says that he revels in the quiet and solitude of his work in the field. The thing about wildlife recording is that it's very much a, a solitary activity. Being still, being quiet, being patient is something that can be very trying for a lot of people. You know, personally, I enjoy it. I think you settle into a, a kind of zone, as it were, and the longer you're in the field, the more dialed in and sensitive you become to the rhythms that are around you, and they change from place to place. So part of the journey for me and what got me into recording and connecting with wildlife really goes back to childhood enthusiasm. And as it never underestimate what tickles your fancy at the age of four or five years old. And, you know, like many little kids, I was interested in animals. I just never grew out of that. And I also grew up in a rather privileged situation, being the son of a diplomat, and had the opportunity to move to different places, which wasn't always pleasant as a kid, but in retrospect, I'm deeply grateful for that. So I ended up in places, I grew up in Algeria, sort of on the edge of the Sahara Desert, and then spent a good deal of my childhood in Scandinavia and Canada and Scotland. So I've always been drawn to sense of isolation I, that I identify with those places. And I think when you move a lot, you know, you don't always form friendships or deep friendships with people because you're in motion. So uh, I think you develop a capacity for self-amusement and, and entertainment. And for me, given my personality, I've always been a bit of a loner and an introvert, which doesn't mean that I don't have social skills, but I perfectly enjoy being alone. And I can still remember as a small kid wandering around the woods and playing by myself in the woods and just feeling connected. So I think I've always been drawn to that. And yes, the ends of the earth can be remote, but through the eyes of a seven-year-old, um, you know, the neighbor's backyard deep back in the acreage could also seem remote. Western tradition does not place much value or premium on either silence or being alone. You know, we tend to reward extroverts. Um, we need to fill silences either in conversation or just go to any public space, a restaurant, a shopping mall. There's music piped everywhere. You're given basically no acoustic piece within which to sort of gather thoughts. So. But I, I also recognize for some people, you know, being out in the wild woolies can also be a deeply disturbing experience too. The, the isolation and the silence is not a comfortable place for a lot of people. So I kind of get that. But for me, it's something I, I truly savor and enjoy. And, you know, what comes with it is a sense of inner stillness and I look a lot of what I do as a form of moving meditation or being absolutely still. And again, it comes back to the idea of mindfulness, of being present to what's around you and to not be distracted. I mean, in a way, it's very Buddhist in some sense. Quinn had a point. Isolation clearly has its good points. And it got us thinking, who would know more about the benefits of mindful solitude than a Buddhist monk. 
people might know me if they'd remember as Brian Reuter, class of 2005. Uh, but after I graduated from Tufts uh, in March of 2006, so not long after, thereafter, I took monastic ordination with His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, in Dharamsala in India, and His Holiness gave me the name Tenzin Gatche. And the word Gatche means somebody who makes people happy. So currently I live in, uh, I'm staying anyway, in Maratika Monastery, which is in eastern Nepal in the Kotong district. Uh, in the mountains, not too high, but we can see the Himalayas and, the, and Everest not too far in the distance. Gache may have been one of the last people on earth to hear about the pandemic. When other people were starting to confine themselves to their homes, he didn't know because he was already in the middle of a self-imposed seclusion. I was in retreat uh, in a, a small home about half an hour's walk up the mountain here uh, in complete isolation. Uh, I had there was no electricity, no running water where I was staying. It wasn't until he had to hike into town for supplies and saw everything was closed that he learned what was up. So it was a bit of a shock. Gachi told us he not only seeks out solitude, he seeks out loneliness. We asked if he could explain what he gets out of it. Uh, the Buddha talked about how one of the virtues a monk should cultivate is taking delight in being alone. So that was something that as I you know, first thought about being a monk uh, was something that I had to come to terms with. Uh, and there were a few things that were very inspiring to me. One was a statement by uh, the great Buddhist master Chogyam Trungpa, um, who, who said that you have to learn to make loneliness your spiritual consort. And to me, that somehow when I heard that, it, it, it resonated very deeply. Um, also, another um, thing I read that really hit me uh, was from the Christian monk, uh, Thomas Merton. Um, he, the pa- it was the passage he composed about being alone. What the solitary renounces is not his union with other men, but the deceptive fictions that take the place of genuine social contact. In solitude, he discovers that he is not uh, disconnected from others, but actually that he is fully connected to them, but at a deep and mystical level. So in both of these cases, I started to see being alone as a way, sort of paradoxically, of connecting more fully with the world. Gachi said he first experimented with meditation and solitude when he was 17 or 18, and it wasn't easy at first. Uh, I think one of the hardest things early on was a sense of feeling ashamed Uh, In our culture, there's a very strong sense of needing to be popular or needing to be uh, accepted by others. And there's a sense that if you're alone, then it's because you failed, you you failed socially. Uh, And coming to terms with that experience, uh, it took some time before I was able to, you know, feel confident in myself in being alone. One of the first major experiences I had was when I went to do a retreat in the south of France, uh, Plum Village Monastery, which is, some of you may know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the famous Vietnamese monk. It's his monastery in Bordeaux in southern France. Uh, so I went there for a three-week retreat. And this wasn't a silent retreat. It was a group retreat, and we were allowed to talk. But uh, it was still the first time I'd been away from a lot of things, especially music. I used to like to listen to rock music. And I noticed throughout the three-week retreat Almost all of the time, I would have one rock song or the other in my head. 
but on the way home from the retreat, he stopped at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, and something clicked. Uh, while I was sitting at the cathedral, I just kind of was present with what, what was there and not, not trying to do anything in particular. But as I came out, I noticed that my mind was quiet. Uh, it was quite noticeable. It was something that I hadn't experienced before. Uh, so I went, uh, and I guess the river Seine is it, it's right, right next to the cathedral. So I sat down on the banks of the river. And I, I think that I, I experienced my mind in a way I'd never had before. It was probably the most powerful experience I'd had in my life up until that point. Um, I felt like there's something, uh, something here. There's something that I need to connect to. Um, and it's uh, something that's going to be a long-term process. But this was the first step. That here I am with, with quiet, with my own mind. And feeling that this is so important, that there's nothing, everything else in life seems very trivial. Being alone is a way of creating space in the mind. It's similar to boredom. So both loneliness and boredom are things that we often seem, see as negative. Uh, but the understanding here is that actually the only reason they're experienced negatively is because there's no longer anything to distract us. And when there's no longer anything left to distract us, then we experience our minds, which is uncomfortable because there's a lot of baggage piled up so one option is just to distract yourself more, but the other option is to start going into that baggage. You know, at first it just feels like discomfort. You may just feel uncomfortable being alone, but after a while things start coming up. You start seeing that um, you're carrying a lot of different uh, thoughts and emotions that aren't related to the present experience that you're project projecting onto the present experience. And it's al alone, being alone uh, is an opportunity to work with that and to be present with that. There's a lot of things that are are there below the surface and the loneliness is just like the tip of the iceberg. Tell Me More is produced by Anna Miller and Julie Flaherty. Our executive producers are Dave Nusher, Ronnie Saroff, and Katie Strollo. Web production and editing support by Taylor McNeil and Sarah Norberg. Our music is by DeWolf Music and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Douglas Quinn for his field recordings. You can hear more recordings by him and other acoustic ecologists at the Soundscapes app. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Or shoot us an email at tellmemore@tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Thanks for listening.